And so you're also the director of the Ideas Lab. I am. I am. Yeah. And so that's the that's the Improving Decisions in Engineering Education Agents Lab. That is right? that that is the acronym. Yeah. So we loosely speaking focus on decision making within engineering education, and that kind of runs the gamut from students, how students make decisions, how faculty make decisions, all the way up to like how our students who then transition into their professional careers, so how do engineers actually make decisions as they're working in their professional capacity. That's a, that's a pretty new lab. How long has it been around? Uh, so so this, I started it, excuse me, I started it when we got here. So I started in 2019, fall of 2019, and I'd started a lot of my work previously was in the area of engineering ethics and ethics education. And so a lot of that was specifically around ethical decision-making. And I thought that I wanted to continue that line of work, but also expand it a little bit more broadly. And I thought that making it beyond just ethical decision-making and really decision-making in different areas or different arenas as well, it's kind of what fit best. How did you get into engineering education? Yeah, that's a good question. I started so my undergraduate degree in chemical engineering um, from Tulane University. Uh, <laughs> I'd gone there in 2005. So Tulane University is in New Orleans, Louisiana. And all of 2005 is when Hurricane Katrina hit. I'd gone there to study civil or environmental engineering. And then after Katrina, the university closed for that semester. And when they reopened for the spring, the university administration had decided to cut five of the seven engineering programs, including civil engineering, which was a little ironic given what happened. And so I decided to stay at Tulane and get an engineering degree. I've been pretty fortunate with like scholarships and things like that. So I figured I'll get an engineering degree and then figure out something else as I go along. And so I switched to chemical engineering, which is one of the two that they kept. Um, but it really felt quite like the fit for me. And I knew I wanted to teach, so I knew I wanted to sort of pursue that line. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to be teaching at the higher education level or high school. Um, if I wanted to be teaching in higher education, then it seemed like I needed a PhD. So I needed to figure out exactly which, what was the right path for me. And eventually, um, I decided to hit pause on the research to make sure I actually did enjoy teaching. So I taught high school physics for a couple of years and that confirmed for me that I was interested in at least teaching and uh, and then I started reflecting more on my own experience as an engineering student and thought that there was probably a path for combining the the interest and the sort of passion I had for engineering and the passion for for education and and one thing I so personally I'd come from a a sort of more like faith-based or education system. And uh, one of the things that always sort of resonated with me was the idea of developing like a well-rounded person, not just someone who can like work on certain technical problems. And that's how I get interested in ethics education. The big thing to me, and this gets back to the beginning of how I started the answer, was like Katrina was like a very obvious example to me how you know decisions that engineers make can have very large impacts on broader populations. And so I always thought that there are probably better or worse ways to be educating engineers, to be thinking about the impacts of their work on an array of stakeholders. And I thought that there was probably, again, some, some improvements that I could 
help contribute to in, in some way. That's a really incredible journey that you've been on. So I'm curious, what are you working on related to engineering education in the space of artificial intelligence? So yeah, I'll give you like some, some backstory. Um, when I was doing my dissertation work, I was interested in, um, or I became interested in like this area of machine learning called natural language processing. So natural languages are, you know, languages that have evolved through human use, like English, Mandarin, Spanish, you know, these kinds of languages. And that, that's in contrast with like formal languages, like computer languages would be more examples of formal languages. So natural language processing, you know, just trying to get a computer to be, to be able to like process the natural language, to be able to do something with that natural language. Uh, I became interested in that because I was interested in how one might scale up qualitative analysis um, to be able to analyze more you know, data across a broader number of participants in research studies and, or in education settings, look at how students are responding across like a larger number of students in order to be able, in order to maybe be able to make um, statements that you might not be able to make if you're just looking at like a handful of people. So I became interested in that and that was back in 2018. So there was like you know, some good progress. I mean, there's plenty of good progress in that space already. But the reason I give you that backstory is because I think that's positioned me well for like basically what's been happening over the last couple of years, which is for these generative models to actually start demonstrating capacities or abilities and what they can do such that they become more useful in, in lots of contexts. So what I do is <laughs> spend a lot of time thinking about how to use those models to either support teaching or and or research. Do you mean stuff like chat GPT? Is that an example of a model? That is an example of a model. That's a good question. So when I say models, that's everything from these kinds of generative text models. Like you said, chat GPT would be an example of a model that is trained to generate text based off of inputs. That would be an example. But there's other kinds of, of machine learning models. But I think for what we're talking about, that probably is the closest kind of, of uh, of model that that I'm spending more time recently doing, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how do you use something like ChatGPT, although it's not quite what I end up using, but same kind of of generative text model. Like I said, so supporting on the on the research side, that would be you know, aside from the examples I just gave, like if you have student responses to exam wrappers, so exam wrappers are like these kinds of reflection essays or questions that students get after they take an exam that are motivated by a bunch of concepts from self-regulated learning. The idea that like you want to ask students to reflect on what they've done for their prior preparation so they can be planning forward going into the future for future exams and things like that. And it's all sort of based in a bunch of theory about metacognition. So, you know, you, you do that. And then if you have a few instructors who maybe have a couple hundred students each and there's across their sections, uh, you know, you start getting a large, a large number of student uh, writing uh, and student written responses that you want to analyze. And so for me, I'm kind of curious, well, like, how do you see different, different patterns in student self-regulated learning kind of associated with their exam performance? So it's being able to answer those kinds of questions, uh, you know, in the teammate feedback example that I gave earlier. It's kind of looking for instances of potential biases and how students give each other feedback. And then on the teaching side, right now it's mostly like how do you help 
either help students to leverage these models and how do students think about this or how do faculty members kind of address or rather not address, but maybe alter their assessment strategies, you know, in response to some of these models, because a lot of these models now, at least some of these models now can achieve near human level or at human level performance. If you give them like a regular homework assignment, you know, that, that you might give a student and, and so the idea is, well, you know, if you're teaching a class, then you may want to modify your assessment strategy. And so it's kind of looking at how do faculty members actually approach that. And that gets back to that decision-making piece that we were talking about earlier um, for my lab, because, you know, it's all about how do faculty members actually make decisions. Yeah, so it sounds like, if I'm understanding you correctly, a lot of the practical applications right now are in maybe combing through large amounts of data, whether they be feedback that people are giving you or maybe assignments um, and trying to pick up patterns and, and stuff like that. Is it? Yeah, that's definitely sort of like, at least for my focus, that's kind of where I spend a lot of time thinking. There's other kinds of use cases. It's like one thing that I did in the spring was to um, see, help students explore how they can use these kinds of models almost as like intelligent tutoring systems. So some kind of system that can help explain concepts to them in ways that are accessible one activity that we would do would be to ask or prompt the model to explain a concept as if they were you know, in kindergarten, as if they were in high school, as if they were a graduate student, and then kind of look at the differences and the different levels of explanation. And that way it's kind of the idea would be like, well, there's like a baseline concept that's going to show up in all of those explanations. But then as the model kind of assumes that you are at different levels of your education, then it'll add on levels of complexity. So the idea was to be able to help students see where that extra complexity starts to come in. Is there any particular model that you found to be more successful than, than others? So I think at the time we were using ChatGPT because I was the only one that was widely accessible, even though, even though back in the spring it was still one of those scenarios where you'd get the message that like, the models that are, you know, the the web interface is at capacity now. Uh, you no longer get those kinds of messages, I think. But now there's also other models that are available. So Bard or Claude. So Bard, you know, being Google's model and Bard being Anthropic's model. I think those are two other examples. And, and uh, I spend, if, if anything, I spend probably more time using Claude for, for like average use cases. Is there anything that you use these models for, like just personally? Like, does it help you make a grocery list or? I will use, oh yes, actually I'll use it a lot for help with coding um, if I'm programming things. So there's uh, GitHub Copilot, which is a code generation uh, model. It's kind of trained specifically for generating computer programming languages or computer programs. And I will use that um, like through an IDE so an integrated development environment, I'll use it for that um, to help with coding. But then sometimes if it's like a, a more extensive kind of project that I'm working on uh, that's going to require lots of lines of code or things like that, then I some, and, I, and I don't think that I would be able to efficiently code that up myself, then I'll definitely just go to ChatGPT usually in that case, actually. Yeah, that's cool. I think I have heard quite a bit that uh, from pe the people that do more stuff like coding that maybe it's a little bit more like that's a little bit more uh 
don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say accurate, but accurate might be the best word. Then something like I might do, which is like, hey, give me the best quote from Caddyshack. And it quotes something from Ghostbusters. That may not be its forte. Yeah, that may not be its forte. You know, the other thing that's tricky about these models, though, is that there's a bit of a moving uh, goalpost element to these in a sense that they're kind of, these companies are regularly updating the models and releasing those updated models as they continue to train them. So something that may or may not have worked six months ago may be different now. Uh, so I'd be kind of curious to know if you went back and asked it some of those similar kinds of questions, what kind of responses you had. I've also heard that they, you know, they build off how people interact with them. So the more you enter, the more I ask it quotes from Caddyshack and give it back stuff, the better, the more it learns them. Yeah. That's a good example too. Another thing that you'll see is people like prompting it for jokes, just like asking it to tell, tell them jokes. That's like another uh, use case or not use case, but sort of like test that people give it to see how it's performing. What do you think the potential is for these types of models in education? Uh, so I tend to be a little more uh, optimistic than most optimistic in the sense of like from the student side for helping them helping students learn so are you familiar with um khan academy so khan academy i'm not going to do it justice in the explanation but khan academy is an online platform that um hosts instructional materials and resources uh for a whole range of topics subjects everything from like elementary school up through I think intro undergraduate courses. Um, one thing that they rolled out in the spring when GPT-4 was released was their version of an intelligent tutoring system that had GPT-4 integrated into it. And that's the kind of thing that I think has a very large potential for making a big difference on the education side in the sense that a, um, these you know, there's a world where these kinds of models help give students feedback much quicker on their assignments. And I think closing that feedback loop to speed that up is, is a big thing. I think helping students, you know, there's this, there's this idea from like called the two sigma problem about how um, if you can have like a one-on-one instructor for each student, then you can kind of shift their performance based like two, two segments, like two standard deviations of kind of like where they are. But the problem is that you can't really have at least back then, was that you couldn't really have an, an individual instructor for each student. And the idea is, well, now with these kinds of models, maybe you actually can get closer to that kind of scenario. The idea is, for where they're going with that is to have the model maybe basically understand what resonates with each student. So, for example, maybe you, I don't know, maybe you like to play soccer or you grew up playing soccer or stuff like that. And if that's the case, I'm trying to explain a concept to you, then maybe it would be great if I could help things or explain concepts in ways that draw on similar kinds of ideas from, that you might have from soccer. Right? Like maybe you like playing musical instruments and it's the same idea. Maybe I can use some sort of metaphors that draw on ideas from music. So it learns who you are and tries to scaffold the information, new information on the pre-existing information, just like a teacher would. Exactly. Yeah, that's the idea. Wow. Well, that sounds fascinating. And also that the idea that you could get that feedback the minute you have that question at 2 a.m. when you're trying to cram for an exam. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's sort of like 24-7 kind of access. Well, what are some of the challenges you think standing in the way of us reaching our potential artificial intelligence? You know, one of the big challenges currently is just the, the cost of 
serving these kinds of models. So the cost of making these kinds of models accessible to everyone, in, it, it's pretty high in terms of both like the hardware, so the kinds of um, GPUs, so graphical processing units, the kinds of computer hardware that these models run on. They're not uh, the easiest to get your hands on. And then the second thing, the idea that like, well, right now, it's usually a small number of companies that have the resources to be able to train and, and make these models available. And, you know, they do a fairly okay job making them available and accessible. I don't know if I'd count on that always being the case. Like in, in many cases, they are companies that are, you know, have a bottom line. So I think as soon as you start paywalling some of these things, uh, that becomes an issue again of access. Then there's also the part of it where like these models, there's no guarantee that these models are <laughs> like generating factually correct information, right? So like there is a scenario where the model is trying to explain something to you, a concept to you in terms that you might understand, and it just completely gets it wrong, right? And in that case, like that, that's obviously not very, not very helpful. Well, uh, to kind of round this whole conversation out, what is something that gives you hope in this space? Something that gives me hope in this space is just the potential staying on this idea of like the intelligent tutoring systems and the sort of individualized education. I think, you know, if you can take even a step in that direction, then that, that's a very big improvement. You know, if you spend a lot of time, if you spend any time, like watching instructional videos on YouTube, you'll see tons of comments from students, well, presumably from students, talking about how, like, you know, this video is so great, it helps me understand something better than my professor or something like that. And that, you know, how accurate all those are is maybe not the point, but the idea is like, well, there are probably a lot of students who just aren't quite getting what they need out of their current education experience. Uh, like their current formal education experience. And so they go sort of pursue other avenues. And so if you have some other sort of ways of helping students access materials and get them that feedback and that sort of interaction that really does lead to better learning than just statically watching the video, I think that that gives me a lot of hope. And I think there's a lot of potential there because it's one thing, you know, to go watch just like, like a 45 minute lecture on something that's been uploaded to YouTube. And sure, I imagine you probably get some understanding of that topic beyond what you had going into watching that video. But if you can then sort of like be quizzed or have questions asked of you to see how much did you actually understand it, maybe actually be engaged in a dialogue as based off of whatever it is you just watched, I think that really sort of helps move the needle much more.